All right. Good evening. Let's go ahead and get started. I'll pray for us. Um, we will then jump into. Uh, I was about to say Augustine. Augustine was last week. We're about to jump into Patrick um, to look at Patrick's life, uh, to be able to look at early Christian missiology, um, especially those that are writing their paper on Patrick. Um, this will probably be very beneficial to you. Um, Grace, good to see you. Good to see you, Grace. <clears throat> so... Yeah, I, I'll, I'll mention that here in a moment. Let me let me pray for us, and then we will get rolling. Lord, we give you great thanks for today. We thank you for Christ, uh, the goodness that you have displayed in him uh, to rescue us, to save us. Father, give us your spirit that we might display his fruits. Help us to love one another, act with humility, respond with grace and mercy to others. Um, Father, we pray you slow our lives down uh, to consider you, uh, to wrap our life around you. We pray that you give our souls rest. And it's in Christ's name. Amen. Okay, Patrick of Ireland. So I brought in a couple of books uh, uh, just to kind of highlight. Uh, Philip Freeman uh, is a new OUP translation. Uh, this is probably, uh, let's put this in uh, Bible translation terms, probably like an NIV, very readable. This one's very readable. My one critique is that he has no numbers. So if you're going to quote from this, you're going to have to look at another edition to then locate the numbers. It's my one critique. Uh, Philip Freeman, uh, I appreciate this, but it could, prov uh, could be confusing to you. Uh, in Patrick's literature, I'm sure that people have heard of the breastplate of Patrick, uh, the, and then the hymn uh, that he writes, the first synod of uh, Patrick. Those are not written by Patrick. Those would be... Um, uh, 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 oh my goodness, I'm blanking on the term. Pseudonymity, uh, pseudonymous. Uh, they're not written by him, falsely attributed. Uh, pseudepigrapha, there we go, falsely written, um, uh, attributed to him. So often on uh, St. Patrick's Day, you'll see people write or reflect on the breastplate of Patrick. No, it's actually not Patrick. It's, it's really um, quite interesting how many people know about that text, but it's not Patrick at all. Uh, this is the one that Michael Haken uh, predominantly wrote. I helped write portions of this book. Uh, would recommend that one. I'll pass these around here in a moment. Uh, I mentioned this last week, Thomas O'Loughlin. Uh, uh, Professor O'Loughlin, he is an Irishman. Where is he at now? Oh, this was written a while ago. I forget where he's at now. Very interesting guy. Very interesting guy. Um, but uh, one thing I appreciate about Thomas's work is how much of a good and close reader he is. Um, uh, he's a very close reader of texts. Uh, I think Haken is a better historian, um, but Thomas O'Loughlin is a good reader of texts. And then this has been a classic for years. Uh, Marie de, uh, de Paor. 
So these are not to keep. All right, Patrick of Ireland is most known to us as the patron saint of, saint, uh, of Ireland. Interestingly, interestingly, he was patronized uh, 7th century. Patronized in the 7th century uh, by the Irish Catholic Church. Uh, March 17th, obviously, it's clearly memorialized as St. Patrick's Day, which is attributed to the day of his death. Often the shamrock is reminiscent of Irishness. Uh, obviously, there's other, other items uh, that are reminiscent of Irishness. He's rumored uh, to have risen and healed many of dead men. I think the, one of the, the greater Irish folklore uh, myths is that he drove out all the snakes of Ireland. It's myth. Now, there's nothing and there's no historical data to, to suggest as much. Uh, it was probably about three years ago. Uh, three years ago, I uh, went to the UK and uh, had a conference out in, out in uh, Finland. And we took a quick stop into Ireland. It's really interesting. For us uh, in the States, the most expensive part is to get across the water. Right. Once you're across the water, it's like taxis. <laughs> it just feels like it's so inexpensive to get around. Um, but we're, we're able to spend probably about three, four days in Ireland, uh, able to visit uh, what, what's what's known as St. Patrick's Cathedral, um, and visit kind of a, other uh, other uh, famous places. It's interesting how much of his life is still reminiscent in Ireland. So yet these legends, <laughs> Patrick, uh, they're all legends, uh, not necessarily reflective of his literature or what we would call the historical Patrick. Right? These would be more known as, as myths. Uh, and furthermore, even the reflections in Christian art demonstrate a Catholicized version of Patrick. Again, his literature shows no... Uh, signs of Roman Catholicism. Uh, and, and really due to these legends, it's no wonder that Patrick maintains probably more global awareness than any other patristic figure, right? I don't, I don't think Patrick in his day would have said, I'll be more well-known than Augustine, right? I, I'm not quite sure that that would be something that he would have said. It's attested that Patrick was born just prior to the 5th century, roughly 390 AD. Roughly 390 AD. So think about this. This makes him a contemporary to whom? Makes him, uh, he was born just after uh, uh, the Council of Constantinople. He was contemporary to Jerome, who dies 420. Contemporary to Augustine, dies 430. He sees the fall of Rome in 414, 410. Four, uh, four, uh, um, he's a contemporary to Cyril of Alexandria, dies 444. Of all the figures that I skipped, I, I, I don't know why I'm skipping Cyril of Alexandria. That's who I'm doing the predominant uh, uh, of my research in right now. 
but we skipped him. <laughs> He's a contemporary to John Chrysostom, uh, 407. And I already mentioned uh, uh, that he most likely, not Council of Constantinople, he was a part of, uh, or not a part of, uh, short, born shortly thereafter, was a contemporary to Council of Ephesus, Council of Chalcedon, and witnessed many portions uh, of the fall of the great Roman Empire eventually falling altogether into Byzantine, uh, Byzantine hands, 476. So when we think about Patrick, let's try to set up his, his life. One of the things I want to, uh, to highlight right away, Patrick is not Irish. I think, I think many people think that he is native to Ireland. He is not. He is a Britishman, British, and then taken over to Ireland. So a couple of questions that I want to just briefly talk about is what in the fifth century, what is the life of Britannia like, right? This is putting us uh, uh, quite a bit on the outskirts of the Roman Empire when we're considering his, uh, his life. So what is life like in fifth century uh, Britannia? And so in the early, uh, in the era of early Christianity and continued uh, spread of the Roman Empire, Britain stood on the northwestern outskirts of the Roman rule. There's a third century Roman historian, Dio Cassius, gives a brief report of Roman conquests of Britain. Um. <clears throat> He was given orders, one of the, uh, one of the uh, generals given orders to invade Britain and his Roman soldiers protested because they were sought after to, quote, make war beyond the habitable world. So even Britain at this time is considered sort of beyond the walls of the Roman Empire there in the second, uh, uh, late second century. Tacitus, first century Roman historian, he records the following. The Britons bore there, which is Roman, burdens cheerfully being subjected, but not enslaved. And this may be taken as a valid generalization for the entire period of the Roman occupation. So Tacitus, first century historian, generally aware of Britons, at the, at the time. Second century, third century, two different walls are constructed to separate the Roman, uh, uh, the Roman Britain area and the unconquered Celtic regions, the Hadrian Wall and the Wall of Antonius Pius. They formed two walls along the mid and northern regions of England. Some of the remains uh, can still be seen still be seen. I don't know if anyone has ever been over to the UK. That's sort of what we're talking about. It's a small island. Uh, it's a small island. We could take, if we landed in London, we could take a two-hour train ride up to Scotland and maybe another 30, probably another hour and a half to get up to the coast. 
So it's, it's really short. It's really short in terms of, uh, terms of length. Has anyone ever been to London? Oh, excellent. Where'd you, where did you go? I, I lived in England. Did you really? Wonderful. Wonderful. So you know where Durham's at? It's north of you. Yep, it's north of you. So that's where I, that's where I will travel. I'll go in, in and out of London up to Durham. It's two and a half hours, two and a half hours, about two hours to Durham. What? Okay. Interesting. Took me two and a half hours. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> probably. Uh, but I'll, I'll go up there often. Yeah. It's, uh, it's, everything's really tight. It's really tight together. Let's see, where was I? Uh, many ex-Roman soldiers and civilians during the fourth century moved to these regions. Uh, you're out in the sort of <laughs> beyond the gates of, of Rome. So it's a, it sort of served as a kind of resting place, retirement. Uh, it's close to the fourth century, however, that led to the comfortable Romanized British civilization and one that would never be restored. According to RPC Hansen, both a historian and theologian, this next phase of Britain's history included the circumstances which uh, Roman rule ended in Britain. And it really could be uh, uh, debated on really what was the cause Right. What was the cause? This is uh, a historian still are debated really on what was the cause overall of the what was the fall? How did the fall of the Roman Empire uh, ensue? The immediate cause of the break with Roman government. Second, the actual achievement of independence itself and the question of whether there was a brief and partial Roman reoccupation of Britain after a formal break. So sort of the idea that I'm trying to display here is that Britain is on the outskirts of really the Roman rule. It's sort of on uh, the, 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 the cusp. The final year of 406, a number, a number of barbarian, barbarians of different races infiltrated the Gallic provinces. This ravaging destruction of Germanic warriors was made possible through a cold winter that froze the Rhine River. Weather, it was weather that enabled them to do this. Upon the third attempt by the British and Roman forces, Constantine III gathered a large force to counter only to be decisively defeated in battle in North Italy, captured and executed. After this, the British provincials, uh, uh, provincials broke from Roman allegiances and declared themselves independent of Roman rule, never to return again to Roman rule. So we're starting, this is the decline, like this is part of the fall. 
is uh, Britain being kind of broken off, if 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 you will. So in uh, that, and that would be that would put um, that would put Patrick at thirteen, anywhere between thirteen to sixteen years old at that time. <clears throat> the decades that that really followed this, the British sought to uphold their army and eventually were hit, often had this hit and run uh, mentality uh, attacks by Irish pirates. It's eventually Irish pirates that capture uh, Patrick. So the Northwestern spread of Christianity and the origins of the British church. There's very little evidence uh, that is available to describe the state the British churches uh, in the third and fourth century. It's not, it's not, uh, it isn't really until Patrick's literature comes along that historians are able to know more about the British church and then in addition, the Celtic church. In the confessions itself, um, Patrick, Patrick's father and grandfather is what? Those writing on this. The deacon, deacon of, of one of the Brit British churches. He'll come back and be trained by them before he then goes out. There's a second century legend about the origins of the British church. It's recorded, uh, uh, it's recorded by a Welsh ninth century historian. So let me say that again. There is a second century legend written by a ninth century historian, right? We have these, right? We do this. And he relates the story on how early British king accepted baptism along with sub-kings scattered throughout all of Britain. So essentially, according to this legend, Christianity goes all the way up into the British area by the second century. There's another comment by John Chrysostom in the fourth century that suggests that Christianity has reached the British regions through means of the original apostles. Whether or not this is true, um, it's, that's yet to be determined. Chrysostom says this, they did not stop there, but even went further and, no, and, and not satisfied with the world known to us. They went out as far as the ocean itself and enclosed in, in their nets the countries of the barbarians and the British Isles. Essentially, although these comments tell of the Christian faith making its way up to Britain, it's still relatively unknown how this was actually, uh, actually accomplished. Uh, early third century writers, uh, for example, Tertullian uh, records that the Christian faith has extended beyond the wall of, uh, of Antonine in answering this question, in whom else have all the nations believed than in Christ who has already come? Tertullian responds, even places in Britain, though inaccessible to the Romans, have yielded to Christ. Origen notes the following of, of Britain. <clears throat> Origen asks, when 
uh, ever did the land of Britain agree on the worship of one God before the arrival of Christ. So as this just brief evidence suggests that the Christian faith is at least making its way to the British Isle as early as the second century, according to Henry Chadwick, he notes that it is not until the middle of the third century then that Christianity is seen as an established entity. There's a contemporary theologian who makes a few comments during the fourth century. In 314, five persons from Britain attended the Acts of the Council of Arles. So remember, councils is where gathered bishops would reside. Five of them would come from Britain. So the British church begins to influence the sphere of Christendom by the early 4th century. According to Athanasius, 325, the British church accepted the decrees of the Council of Nicaea. and It was represented at the Council of Sardica in 348 and supported Athanasian Christology. Furthermore, in 358, Hilary Poitier suggests theological fidelity of the British church to Nicene Christology. And he, he enrolls them on, the, on his side during the Arian controversy. Then Patrick's born. So if this is true, if, if these testimonies are generally true, then the British church is landing on the side of pro-Nicene adherents. It's landing on the side of pro-Nicene adherents. And then it's at this point that we see the life of Patrick who enters into the scene. So then Patrick, born roughly 390, born roughly 390, Roman rule roughly influenced the British province for nearly 350 years and pro-Nicene and Orthodox Trinitarian theology may have already influenced the British church up to this point. Right, 50 years before Patrick's born, you have bishops that are recognized at the Council of Nicaea. The opening, uh, the opening few paragraphs of Confessio detail the early life and lineage of Patrick's life. He says this at great length. He says this at great length, beginning right here. I am Patrick, a sinner and a very unsophisticated man. I am the least of all the faithful and to the many, the most despised. My father's name was Calpornius. He was a deacon and his father was the presbyter. Potitius, from the town of Bonaventia Bernier. He owned a villa nearby, the place where I was captured when I was about 16 years old. If the Irish raiders did come in 406, like I previously suggested, then that means he is born at 390. So I, that's why I have circa. I didn't know the true God then, 
I was taken from there to Ireland with thousands of others. We deserved our fate because we had turned our backs on God and did not obey his commandments. We did not listen to our presbyter who warned us about our salvation and the Lord overwhelmed us with the anger of his spirit and scattered us among the nations, even to the very end of the earth. Here, my smallness is seen among strangers. So this is how he opens up his confession. I am Patrick, ego patricius, a sinner and very unsophisticated, self-deprecatory. It's very self uh, uh, self-depreciation of, uh, in, is his reflection of his own self-identity, especially that of his former condition. Especially that of his former condition. His father, Copornius, is a, de- is a deacon, and his grandfather, Potitius, is a presbyter. Thus, it's, it's highly likely that Patrick was raised in the church. It's very likely that he's raised in the church. He recalls hearing the commandments of God, more broadly, the word of God, including the gospel as told through the presbyter. What is really interesting, though, what is really interesting, though, is how he perceives his conversion. 16, he's taken by Irish raiders because God was angry with him. Also, Patrick Patrick identifies the place of his early upbringing. Bonaventia Bernier. And regrettably, this hometown identification offers little help. The name of his city could be distorted through the transcription because the only city with this name known to us today is a mile from the village of Norton in North uh, Northamptonshire, which is not where he's claiming to be from. And so either city is lost or uh, through text critical um, uh, uh, transmission of the manuscript, we've lost the city. So though an exact location is difficult to ascertain, this town does affirm, confirm then that Patrick is born and raised within Roman Britain and more likely on the West Coast which was more susceptible to the Irish raiders. So as he reflects on his early, on his early life, he's 16. He's 16 at the time of his um, capture. Notice what he says here. I want to highlight this. Let's see. Yep, right here. I didn't know the true God. I didn't know the true God. <clears throat> I was taken from there to Ireland with thousands of others, and we deserved our, fit, uh, our fate. Why? Right? Why? He self-perceives his own obstinance as a child and as a teenager led God to bring over Irish raiders to take him into captivity. 
while I appreciate that revisiting of uh, in his conversion, I'm not quite sure that that's really good theology. So now let's look at his captivity and his actual conversion. Patrick details his captivity with vivid detail. By the time Patrick reaches his mid-teenage years, 16, Irish raiders come and capture him. <clears throat> Patrick was, in his own words, captured when I was about 16 years old. Notably, it wasn't just Patrick. This was a mass exodus. Thousands. <clears throat> In fact, Patrick records the scores of British natives were taken captive. I was taken from there to Ireland with thousands of others. This massive exodus is quite probably, quite probable, the invasion of the Germanic peoples in 406 407. And it's that this, this uh, 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 invasion is quite well documented. Uh, quite well documented among, amongst historians. Interestingly, uh, Patrick <clears throat> does not attribute this exodus due to a lack of military or resistance efforts, but he offers theological reason. Patrick evokes the language of the Hebrew Bible, the story of Israel, as the prophets speak of the judgment and exile of Israel. Quote, we deserved our fate because we had turned our backs on God, did not obey his commandments. We did not listen to our presbyter who warned us about our salvation. And the Lord overwhelmed us with the anger of his spirit and scattered us among many nations, even to the ends of the earth. So it's in this de deportation that Patrick attributes his failure to heed the message of the presbyter, and then he self-embodies sort of the story of Israel's failure. Go ahead. Don't know. I would need to relook at the sources there. Uh, most likely with it being thousands, it's going to be a grab bag. They're going to be grabbing people. Yeah, they're going to be grabbing people. Eventually, they'll turn them into slaves is what they're turned into. It was through this event that Patrick attributes his conversion. It was through late night reflection that Patrick just all of a sudden becomes cognizant cognizant of his sinful ways, and he turns his whole heart to the Lord. And in his conversion, he recognizes the work of the Trinity, and he uses theological Eden, that is new creation, as a metaphor for his turn. Uh, he says this, and in Ireland, the Lord opened my understanding about my unbelief, so that all, although it was late, I might become aware of my sinful ways and turn with my whole heart to the Lord. He looked upon my misery and had mercy on my youth and ignorance. God watched over me before I knew him. 
before I had any wisdom, before I could distinguish between good and evil, he protected and comforted me as a father would his son. This is conversion. At night, I, I think he's recalling the instruction of his own upbringing. He recognizes the anger of the Lord is appeased. He recognizes that he has turned from his sinful ways. Rather than anger, God now looks upon him in his condition of misery, only to give mercy. Really, the result of his conversion quickly transformed his environment as a means of piety and spiritual growth. Uh, One of the things that I want to just highlight for Patrick, Patrick's spirituality and Patrick's missiology. Those are two items that we should be drawing from uh, uh, Patrick here. So even as a newly identified Irish slave, his prayer life and piety only increased. He says this, when I came to Ireland as a slave, I tended sheep daily and prayed frequently. My love for God grew more and more and my fear of him as well. While my faith and spirit increased in a single day, I would pray a hundred times and the same at night. Even when I was in the woods of the mountain, I rose before the dawn to pray through snow or cold or rain. I suffered no harm from it. There's no laziness in me. <clears throat> I, can now, I can see now that the spirit was burning inside of me. Right, Even in his vocation, Patrick's spiritual disciplines are growing. How would he know this? Right? How would he know this unless he was first taught to do this beforehand? And as he nears the end of his life, Patrick, he, he still reflects positively on his Irish slavery. slavery. It was by no means to transform his condition or to alter his loves. Rather, it was cultivating of his own spirituality. He says this, I didn't go to Ireland of my own free will. Indeed, I almost died there, but it turned out well for me since I was chastised by the Lord. God made me. What I am today, someone far different than I was then, so that I might work from the care and salvation of others. At that time, I didn't even care about myself. So as he reflects on his own time, he reflects on it positively. God using these items for his own good. I wonder if we forget that. I wonder if we forget that, and I wonder if we resort to it too thinly. Right? God will work all things for your good. We often say that to others in order to, to soften their pain, but we often doubt it in the, the darkness of our own night. God bends the knee of all your trials for his glory and your good. And as he reflects on the time 
it was of, uh, on the time of his time as a slave, God used to grip the heart of Patrick and it, and, uh, and it changed his, Patrick's. Through this, his soul love of self grew more towards the love and salvation for others. Patrick, who began his captivity with little or no indication of religious piety, would eventually return to his native Britain, uh, to his native Britain, a devout Christian. He's converted at this time, converted with one who is enriched, uh, uh, enriched with prayer, filled with prayer. How many of us can testify to our own lives to say, I prayed a hundred times today, even did a hundred times when the sun went down, only to do as much before the sun came up. He's a pious man. I think he's very pious. I think it puts into uh, a kind of perspective, uh, or at least an example of what it means to pray without ceasing. Prayer is both formal and informal. I think Patrick is a very good example of constant informal prayer life. He's praying as he's working. He's communing with God out in the woods. Right? As he's working, as he's enslaved. As he's enslaved. For six years. For six years. Years, he's a slave. And during this time, he apparently serves a single master. And then suddenly on a given night, Patrick has a vivid description of a dream that compels him to leave his slave owner and travel back home. It says this, it was there one night while I was sleeping that I heard a voice speaking to me. You have fasted well. Soon you will return home. Later again, I heard a voice saying, behold, your ship is ready. So now at the age of 22, right? Six years later, he was taken captive at age 16. Patrick now, upon hearing this voice or dream, takes voyage to trek across Irish terrain for about 200 miles. Patrick recalls, but the ship was not nearby. It was perhaps 200 miles away in a place I had never been, nor <clears throat> did I know anyone there. But soon after this, I ran away and left the man I had served as a slave for six years. I traveled with courage from God, who guided my way toward good. I feared nothing, nothing until I came to the ship. So it appears that the dream or the voice is the divine beckoning to travel back home. And he took courage from God and trusted he would rightly steer him towards the shipyard. All right, that's an odd story. All right, this is an odd beginning to like the middle part of, of his confession. 
this would give uh, uh, at least some type of testimony to him self-describing hearing audibly a voice, whether or not this is a dream per se, whether or not it's an actual audible voice per se, as we're, we still don't know. TM Charles Edwards, uh, a, a Irish historian, uh, says this about early Ireland. Says this was not an easy feat for the district in which he was living as a slave was beside the wood of a cult near Kilia in the north of the modern, uh, 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 modern country, uh, County Mayo, close to the Atlantic coast. <clears throat> Upon arriving at the shipyard, the captain was quite angry with Patrick and exclaimed, there is no way you are coming with us. But as Britain is turning, or sorry, as Patrick is turning his back towards the end and praying fervently, he hears a voice of one of the sailors, come back, we want to talk with you. <clears throat> so Patrick is headed towards Britain. After three days, they arrive on the coast and then wander for another 28 days in a seemingly desolate land. And after commenting on a few events that happened, with the traveling sailors, Patrick finally returns homeland with his parents. So it seems like this journey took a couple of years. From Ireland back home, a few years. So he's now how old? 25, 26. 25, 26 years old. Fascinating as it may be, Patrick immediately details another vision that he saw during the night as readers of his Confessio were left thinking this vision happened the same night and shortly thereafter his return. Because <clears throat> there's no break, right? There's no break in the narrative. He gets home and then he has this vision. He recalls a man approaching him by the name of Victoricus, as if coming to him from Ireland. <clears throat> Victoricus identifies himself and hands Patrick many letters that were written from Irishmen. And as Patrick opens them, he reads, quote, the voice of the Irish. And he continues to reflect, while I was reading this, I thought I heard the voice of those who dwell beside the wood of a cult near the eastern, or sorry, near the western sea. It was as if they were crying out with a single voice, holy boy, we beg you, come back and walk among us again. I was struck through my heart and could read no more, and then I awoke. Then I awoke. We're probably watching, most certainly watching, his call back to Ireland. We're watching his call back to Ireland. Go ahead. 
<clears throat> yep. <clears throat> he was handed many letters. So in his dream, he's reading, right? So this vision, as Thompson suggests, was one of the turning points of Patrick's life. Perhaps the most crucial of it all was this, which decided him to go back to Ireland and to win the inhabitants to those, uh, 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 to his own religion. To the end of his life, he considered himself to be God's chosen man to do this work. Uh, you know these people. You know people like this that have uh, received or been on the receiving end of a very powerful call of God to go. I think we're reading this account. I think we're reading this account. And as soon as Patrick returns home, Patrick receives a personal call uh, to ministry, ministry that would cause him once more to leave Britain and to return to Ireland, not as a slave of the Irish natives, but as a slave of God. I think there's something that we have to consider. The call of God and the, uh, the church's mission ought to compel us to be willing to leave home. Are we willing to leave home to go to a land? So now as we look at Patrick's education and ministerial abilities, I'm trying to see, I'm trying to be mindful of the time. Yep. We'll take a break after this one. Uh, Patrick, in fact, he did not immediately return to Ireland. Even though this dream seemed to be right when he gets back, he did not immediately return. It appears that Patrick stayed in Britain for a number of years to receive both theological and ministerial training. At this point in Patrick's life, he's nearing 30 years of age. He's nearing 30 years of age before he's about to head back. Upon his return home, <clears throat> he details a few events where, right here, where church leaders and persons bring up the sins of Patrick that he committed prior to his confession of Christ. These details are important because they mention that Patrick has, a, has become a bishop of the British church. I think what's really helpful to even see here is that those who are going into ministerial vocation, this is what you don't do. Have a short memory of people's sins before their conversion. It is most likely this charge that causes Patrick to leave Britain and return to Ireland. And Patrick returns home around 25, 26 years old. He leaves for Ireland around the age of four, uh, 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 at the age of 35 in about 431. To let you know what's going on in other parts of the world, Nestorius and Cyril 
are debating. They start debating about 428, leading to a council of Ephesus at 431 to debate Christology. Patrick at age 35 then leaves for Ireland. And it was during this eight to 12 year stint that he's acquiring theological and ministerial training. It's in Confessio 9 that Patrick's self-depreciation comes forth once more. I'm not an educated man like those who have studies, both law and scripture equally. Such men have not had to change their speech since they were boys, but have insisted instead continually perfected it. I, on the other hand, have had to learn to speak in a foreign language. You can easily see from my writing how limited my education has become. So Patrick's speaking and articulation is much less. It's far inferior than his peers, and he blames his previous sins, most probably his exile to slavery, as a deterrent from understanding the scriptures adequately. Let's just put this into uh, focus here. Augustine, who was trained, Augustine, who probably converted um, maybe about the, a little bit later than uh, when Patrick converted. Augustine, who is thoroughly trained in Law, philosophy, and yet it's Patrick that we remember most as a culture. It's Patrick that we remember most as time in Ireland. And yet Patrick is probably uh, uh, at the, the diminutive level, far inferior in terms of the intellect than his peers. I wonder, I wonder if Patrick had a more simple prayer life than Augustine. I wonder if Patrick prayed more than Augustine. Education is not what makes you uh, superior in the Christian realm. It's faithfulness to Christ and your own piety, often when no one is watching you often when no one is watching you. Patrick self-identifies as a rustic figure. He describes himself as a rustic figure, indeed unsophisticated. Even the conclusion of his confessio is in the form of an apology. Whoever you might be, who comes upon these words written in Ireland by Patrick, the ignorant sinner that none of you would say that in my ignorance, I did anything worthy. I bet he dies still ashamed. But I still bet, I, I bet he still dies shame of, of his past. Patrick composed Latin, composed his literature in Latin. 
This is how simple his Latin is. I can't hand a, a sixth, seventh grader Augustine's Latin, uh, but I could hand Patrick's Latin to a sixth, seventh grader. Simple. The way that he composes his, his work is really simple. <clears throat> we even see this, given his inadequacies, his Latin likewise suffers what would be normal, beautiful Latin prose. Hansen, I've already mentioned him, RPC Hansen, states this, he, Patrick, was, is not fluent. He finds it hard to express himself. Patrick's Latin, time and time again, strikes the reader as inefficient and awkward. He gropes for words. He simply fails to convey what he means, and we cannot be sure precisely what he is trying to say. Patrick himself even admits this. I was only a young man, almost a speechless boy, when I was captured before I knew what I ought to seek out or avoid. This is why today I'm so embarrassed and I'm afraid to reveal my lack of learning. I'm not able to explain myself to educated men as clearly as my spirit and mind long to do so that my words might match my feelings. Let's just go ahead and talk to everybody in this room. Patrick is how old when he's sent back? Roughly 35. Roughly 35. For 10 years, he is trying to grasp simple ideas so that he can go into Ireland equipped. Who does this not sound like? You. Just trying and trying and trying. Get, trying to get it over and over and over again. It feels like it goes in one ear, out the other. I read it. I have to flip it over. I have to read it again. But yet the whole world remembers Patrick and not Augustine. You do see that, right? It's faithfulness. It's faithfulness. Even though the world culture turns Patrick into a party figure, <laughs> You don't know when Augustine died, but you could tell me when Patrick died. It's his faithfulness. There's a sense of, in which humility, intellectual humility, especially for those that might have those gifts, intellectual humility is really needed for your success in the church. You will fail as a teacher and as a preacher is if, is if you stand in front of people acting in such a diminutive way, those that are before you. No one will listen to you. Constantly being talked down to. Intellectual humility is really important. And I think Patrick displays, displays just some of that intellectual humility. He doesn't have it and he's fine with it. He has sorrow over it, but it does not deter him from going to Ireland. I think there's a lesson there. There's a lesson there for us. Questions so far? 
observations so far? I have a question. Yep, who is that? Linda, go for it. Yep. Okay. Um, when he was Roman Catholic, correct? False. He is not Roman Catholic. Okay. He is not Roman Catholic. So, so oh. that I don't know if you heard the the beginning part of the the talk. I tried to make this set of arguments. All these legends are not reflective of his actual literature or the historical Patrick. Icons of him demonstrate that there's a Catholicized version of Patrick that is not the historical Patrick. So legend, uh, the legendized Patrick has become Catholic. Yes. But, okay. But well, Patrick that, himself is. That probably answers my question then because yeah. I, every time I hear about someone like this that is Catholic, I'm yeah. wondering if whenever they say they pray a hundred times a day, yeah, are they saying the Hail Mary a hundred uh, times a day? Yeah, I don't think and, so. Yeah, that's a really good question. Uh, and, I, and, and I think we, let me, let me take this, even this quick moment, Linda, because I, I, I think it's, I think it is so common. It's so common. Protestants, if I can just speak generally, Protestants love the Reformation. We love the Reformation. Martin Luther, John Calvin, Zwingli. Man, we love it because there is a clear break of Protestantism with Roman Catholicism. So, so we know that history. Here's, here's the, the concern, especially as a historian uh, and especially as one who specializes in patristics. <clears throat> evangelical, not even just Protestant, evangelicals heritage is in the early church not 17th, 18th century. There's a sense in which Patrick is still among us, right? There's probably going to be some differences, but as, as Linda, as Linda kind of commented, how many of you before this class would have said Augustine is a Roman Catholic? How many? Yeah. I would say over half, half. He's not Roman Catholic. He isn't. The concept of Roman Catholicism does not emerge until the 6th, 7th century with the rise of the papacy. Roman Catholics won't say that. The rise of the papacy, the rise of the papacy, Pope Leo I is where we finally start saying, got it. That's where Roman Catholicism is going to start uh, uh, having clear identity elements. So Patrick is not Roman Catholic. Augustine is not. Well, there Roman. were no written prayers for them to repeat. Or oh, of course there like is. That. Yeah, yeah. Oh, of course there are. Of course there are. But written prayers does not automatically mean we're Roman Catholic. So, like for example, the church that the church that I pastor at, we recite written prayers, fully recite them, recite them openly. We, we put them in the, the liturgies for, uh, for our people. Our, uh, one of our pastors uh, writes them. So the, the notion of written prayers is not distinctive to Roman Catholicism. Distinctive to Roman Catholicism is papal authority, papal authority, the, rule, the, the order of scripture and uh, tradition, 
And then more prominently, the more prominently, the efficacy of the, of the Pope or the efficacy of the bishop. What makes baptism and the Eucharist valid? Is it your faith? I say yes as a Protestant. Or is it who baptizes you? The efficacy of the bishop. And I say no to that. That's Roman Catholic. Yeah, there's a good, a good sets of questions there, Linda. Thank you. Yeah, you got it. Anybody else? Yeah, good. All right, let's take a quick five. Then we will resume. All right, so let's come back to the final, uh, final elements of Patrick's life. Uh, Linda brought up a couple of items that I, that I sort of want to just touch base on. Uh, I, 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 the first lecture was how many moons ago? <laughs> the first lecture was many moons ago. In that lecture, tried to give uh, an argument to suggest that evangelicals at large have not been familiar with their patristic heritage. Uh, so as an evangelical, I read the patristics sympathetically. I read them, um, read them sympathetically, read them um, too, with a critical eye, and I think I've mentioned this story. Michael, Michael Haken is um, beloved, beloved, beloved friend and mentor of like 10 years now. <clears throat> He's an Irish Kurdish man. So the first person that he sort of turned kind of my eyes towards was Patrick. Um, it was Patrick. So the book, the book that, that's passing around I contributed to that when I was in my doctoral studies. Uh, uh, Michael, uh, he is, I don't know, roughly five two, five three, five. Uh, that's probably it's probably too small. Five five to five eight. He's smaller than me, so I look down on him. <laughs> he grabs my hand uh, one um, as as we're shaking the, our hands, um, and he says this. He says. As much as we read the fathers, never forget the gospel. Never forget the gospel. Here, we're going to try to circle back around. Uh, he says, never forget the gospel. And so there, there's a way in which Protestants can read patristic literature, right? We read patristic texts critically. They're not gospel. Patristics are not gospel. This is historical uh, heritage that has problems that has uh, theological heirs. There are things we take from it. There are things we don't take from it. We don't uh, uh, lean into everything. Uh, I can't tell you how many times, how many times, here, let me, let me just ask this. How many New Testament scholars as in the Baptist world are you aware of? How many are here? There, there's multiple. Here, I'll just throw, there's multiple. New Testament scholars, there's multiple uh, 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 dogmatic or theological scholars. There's multiple historians, Andrew Fuller, Jonathan Edwards, he, even here. How many Baptists 
patristic scholars are there in the world? Throw out a number. Under 15. You get that, under 15. There's a reason. Our heritage is, uh, lies elsewhere. So what I want to do as a historian, theologian, in the patristic world is to show this heritage needs to be recovered. This heritage thoroughly needs to be recovered. Um, but act critically, read critically. There are good things. There are uh, items to um, not take in. Yeah, when I go, so in, so I am a North American Patristic Society. Um, I, I'm one of the, the conference organizers for that. It's, it meets every May. Our membership is roughly five, uh, five to 700. And it's across the world. Like we have scholars from Australia that come up to this. Scholars from the UK, even though it's a North American uh, conference. Every time that I go there, I, I, don't, I know where like 10 evangelicals are at. Um, but we're 13 weeks into it. I hope your doctrine of the Trinity has sharpened. Like of all the doctrines that we've talked about, patristic Trinitarianism, I want all evangelicals without hesitation leaning into pro-Nicene Trinitarian theology. Spirituality, meh. Ecclesiology, meh. Right? So this is where you just read them critically. Okay, dive back into Patrick. Patrick's return to the Irish lands. Finally, Patrick returns to the Irish lands. His, his return to Ireland is not without opposition from his British fellows. This opposition is unlike the earlier criticism of his previous sins. Rather, the opposition may be due to the fear of pending persecution. As Patrick recalls, people offered me gifts with weeping and tears. They fear that Patrick will put himself in danger among pagan barbarians. If we can, let's, uh, I, man, I just, I just got off the soapbox. I'm about to hop onto another soapbox. <laughs> Teach your church to send people to hard areas. Teach your church to send people to hard areas. Um, a lot of global mobilization is you just trying to help people see in the scriptures that the nations actually exist and that the gospel should go to the nations, right? That's just mobilization 101. You're going to spend the majority of your ministry just trying to do that. But if you get a mature church, and by a mature church, I mean one that is reproducing locally and globally, that's a mature church. If you can do that, get people to go to hard areas. And I, what I don't mean by this is when persecution picks up, don't call them to come home. You be stable with them, help them to suffer, help them to provide the gospel to these areas. Like even, even uh, right now, 
Um, you can just pray, pray for me, my family. There's a reason my kids are with me tonight. Here, I'll turn this way. There's a reason my kids are with me tonight. Uh, right over here in the corner uh, at our church, I do uh, the, the local ministry uh, training and then the global training for, for at our church. And essentially the pastor over ministerial development. Um, so part of that is both locally and for globally. And what my wife does is global care. So my wife takes, um, she talks to our global workers once a month, once every, uh, once every two months, we have a worker right now who's in a hard area. And so we sent my wife, these kids, mother to a hard area. She's there for two weeks. Um, yeah, in a, in a very rough spot. I'll give no details, uh, both because this is recorded and you need to teach your people on how to talk about where people go. Um, <clears throat> yeah, but as even as we reflect on Patrick here, many people are offering him gifts not to go back to Ireland. Oh, you, you be the pastor, minister, teacher, equipper, mobilizer that provides theological depth to people and you teach your people how to suffer well. Teaching them how to suffer well means when persecution comes, they don't run away. The motive to return to Ireland is based in a Trinitarian confession as well as a deep desire to proclaim the gospel to the Irish pagans. Look at this. Since I believe in the Trinity, I must make known the gift of God and his eternal peace without fear of danger. Implant that in your heart. Your love of mission is not because people should fear hell. Your love of mission is because your life is rooted in God and the gospel. Because trust me, trust me, when it gets hard, you'll abandon it. Unless your heart, your loves are rooted in God and the gospel, you'll leave. Look at, I just want to read this again. Right here. Implant this on your heart. Since I believe the Trinity, get that, the predication of his mission. I feel like Patrick is John Piper before John Piper was John Piper. Since I believe in the Trinity, it's the basis. I must go. Not because hell is real and people will go there, I must go. Since God, his glory, the gospel is true and I believe it, I must go. I did this mission. That is, I did this, the mission to the Irish so that I might come to the Irish pagans 
to preach the gospel and to suffer insults from unbelievers so that I might hear reproach because of my wanderings and suffer many persecutions, including being placed in chains while I sacrifice my free birth for the good of others. He's willing to withgo sufferings so that others may know. Patrick's Trinitarian Foundation. What did you learn in Dr. Wilhite's Church History One class? That the Trinity matters. The Trinity is anchored for the Christian life. The Trinity is what the Patrista era forged for the Christian church. His Trinitarian foundation compelled his love for the Irish. He knows that pending persecutions are coming, and yet this does not deter. This does not deter him from his mission. He seeks the good of the other. Seeks the good of the other, even knowing that it's coming. If I am worthy, I am even ready to give up my life freely and without hesitation for the sake of his name. It is Ireland. I wish to live out my life to the end if the Lord would grant my prayer. <clears throat> but remember, Patrick Simple, right? He's a dummy for saying that. No. He knows enough about God to do that. Teach people about God. Teach people rich theology about God and missions. The two are not antithetical. Oh, the two are not antithetical. We don't say good ecclesiology is built off of thin theology. Why would we say good missiology has no theology? We would never say that. <clears throat> There's a famous expression in Patrick. There's a famous expression. And this is it. His pursuit of his mission is so secure that though he wants to return to Britain and be with family, he chooses otherwise. He says this, I am bound by the Holy Spirit. That statement is a really famous uh, Patrick expression. I am bound by the Holy Spirit who declares that if I left, I would be guilty of sin. I'm afraid of abandoning the work that I've begun here. No, no, not my work, but that of Christ the Lord who has ordered me to stay with these people for the rest of my life. How many people are here? One, one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, 10, 11, 12, 13, 14, 15, 16. <clears throat> I want all 16 of you to hear Patrick's call, mission of life, and implant it 
into the hearers of those you minister to and in your own life so that after you've been a pastor for 10 years, you're willing to go. Uh, Allison and I, we asked that question uh, every one to two years. We say, is this the year that we go? Is this the year that we go? Allison felt called to missions when she was 21 years old. 21 years old. She then meets me after she has spent four, three years on the field. <laughs> and then what do I do? I bring her home. She's still doing missions. She's not planted in a culture. She's mobilization. She does mobilization. She does global care. She does training on this side to send people. She, um, her help uh, has sent um, one, two, probably three to four people, units. It's a question we ask once every two years. One, we ask it every one to two years. And so this expression, being bound by the Holy Spirit, is part of the Trini Trinitarian compulsion to stay until his death. This is one thing Patrick got for certain. Him staying in Ireland was God's call for him to stay. There's no other call. Patrick himself is well aware of the risks and intends to be the recipient of persecution in his travels around Ireland. He risks many dangers for the sake, for your sake, even to the furthest places beyond which no one lived. In fact, he expects to be kidnapped and murdered, made a slave or something else. And Patrick's love for the conversion of these Irish folk supersedes his fear of death. He says this, if I have ever done anything good for the sake of my God that I love, I ask of him, that I might be able to shed my blood with those converts and captives for the sake of his name. Even if it means I will not be granted a grave or that my poor body will be torn apart by dogs or wild animals or devoured by the birds of the air. I firmly believe that if this should happen to me, I will have gained my soul as well as my body. This sounds Pauline. Sounds Pauline. Sounds like Romans 9 meets Colossians 1. Really, despite these fears of pending death and persecution, Patrick also mention, mentions scores of conversion. At his death, Patrick hopes 
His ministry will provide a theological foundation for thousands of people, comma, the ones that I baptized in the Lord. Clergy, monks, and virgins are developed from his labors. After his conversion, he hints at some form of catechism and then confirmation for ministry. He says this as he's nearing kind of the end of his his book. I'm in great debt to God who gave me such grace so that many people have been reborn in him and then brought to contemplation, or sorry, have been brought to completion. Clergy have also been ordained for these people who are now coming to the faith, the ones the Lord has brought to himself from the ends of the earth. Really, Patrick's evangelistic and teaching endeavors had such an impact that it transcended social systems. Sons and daughters of Irish kings being converted, becoming monks and virgins for Christ. Right, we talked about this not too long ago when we talked about Gregory of Nyssa's uh, life of uh, uh, life of Macrina, right? The concept of female monasteries, they'd be known as virgins. As Blanc and Hansen observe, the two authentic writings of Patrick depict him as a typical fifth century bishop involved in preaching, baptizing, celebrating the Lord's Supper, confirming new converts and ordaining ministers. Before we dive into Patrick's Trinitarian theology, a couple just reflections about his life. 16, he's in Ireland. He doesn't go back to Ireland until what age? Higher, 30 to 33. 30 to 35. Yep, 30 to 35. Oh, I'm second guessing myself. 22. He's at 22. Does not return uh, for another few years. 25, 10. He's 35 years old before he heads back. Oh, man. How many times have we mentioned this? Age and time and training and equipping go together. It goes together. Take your time being equipped and yet do it quickly. Take your time learning and meeting with God. Be eager to go and have the community and maturation have a mature community that watches your maturation of knowing when to be let out. If you can envision, if you can envision, let's see, uh, uh, Kentucky horse races, 
right? We lived in Kentucky for a little bit. So horse race analogy is coming to mind. <clears throat> it takes lots of energy to get the horse into the blocks. I don't know if you've ever watched this. Then they close it behind the horse. You got to open that quick because the horse starts to panic, right? Here's ministry training. I need you as eager as that horse to minister to the world. But you need the church, you need ministers, you need pastors, you need professors to equip you and to also tell you, not yet. Until that is pulled and you get to sprint. Someone who ministers too quickly without theological training can damage the church. And yet someone who stays too long into theological education can idolize their education and never minister to the church. It's a hard balance. It's a hard balance. Keep rolling. Trinitarian confession. I want to look a little bit at, at his Trinitarian thought life. Rule of faith. Yep. Yeah, go for it. Go for it. Yep. Yep. Mm -hmm. Yes, very much so. Very much so. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. In this next section, we'll probably start quoting some of those texts. So like in other lectures, you heard me say this text sort of related to this idea as this person quoted it. Up, up until now, I've been just trying to narrate his life. Um, in, you're going you're gonna to hate this. <clears throat> uh, all of my lecture notes look like this. I am a perfectionist, which means nothing is ever completely done. But obviously, this is done enough for us to discuss in here. <clears throat> there is nothing right there. <laughs> so I totally intended to answer that question, and I chose not to. You're welcome. Um, I knew that I was going to be asked that question, and I thought, <clears throat> what should I not do in these notes? And it was that one. So we'll answer a couple of these. Like, a couple of these will, will be pointed out. Um, but it's a, it's a really good question. Uh, we can know for certain that he has the full canon of Scripture as we have it. That is, that's for sure. Uh, by the time where he's situated in life, we know what he has. So the rule of faith and Trinitarian confessions. The, the, the first theological section of Patrick's Confessio is a Trinitarian confession. And he, uh, he begins his work by commenting 
on his conversion and brief background to his life. D.R. Bradley notes the following, that the Latin in the first half of the creed contains a particular balance and cadence that reflects a polished style in antiquity. As such, it clearly is not part of Patrick's original composition. It's probably external to him. So either through a catechism, some other source, or the effects of Nicene theology. So his confession reads as this. He's, he would be known as, uh, in, in, uh, as a Latin expression, he's a confessor. There is no God, nor ever was in times past, nor will he be hereafter. In other words, the eternal God. Then God, the Father, unbegotten, without beginning, from whom is all beginning, who holds sway over all things, as we declare. And his son. So this is Patrick's confession. So we're reading Patrick's, right, Patrick's material right now. And his son, Jesus Christ, whom we affirm most assuredly to have been with the Father before the origin of the world, spiritually and ineffably begotten by the Father before all beginning. You notice a simpleton is confessing eternal generation. Get that. This simple Patrick is able to confess eternal generation. He's begotten by the Father before all, beginning, and by him all things visible were made. He was made man, and when death had overcome, he, has received, he was received into heaven, into, uh, he was received into heaven beside the Father, and he was given him all power over every name in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue will confess to him that Jesus Christ is Lord and God in whom we believe, to whose imminent coming we look forward. The judge of the living and of the dead. You can see that he's quoting text right now. <clears throat> Who will render to every man according to his deeds, and he has poured forth upon us abundantly the Holy Spirit, the gift and pledge of immortality, who makes those who believe and obey sons of God and co-heirs with Christ. It is him that we confess and adore one God in the Trinity of the holy name. Theology of this confession is quite rich and obviously explicitly Trinitarian. Confesses the timeless unbegotten nature of God. He rules and reigns over all things of the Son. Patrick offers ref comments reflective of Nicene theology. The Son has eternally been with the Father. That's eternal relations. So that therefore means it's not Arian. <clears throat> The son's incarnation is of a begotten nature with the father. 
He functions as the ruler and judge of the world and contra the later developed filioque controversy. Patrick affirms that the spirit proceeds from the son. When commenting on the spirit, Patrick offers a katana of scripture passages. The Holy Spirit proceeds from the Son and is the basis by which persons enter a filial relationship with the Godhead, becoming sons of God and co-heirs with Christ. In this creed, uh, uh, Patrick's Katina is partial clauses and its allusions to Scripture. As such, he appeals to many of the New Testament passages. No scriptural allusions are made regarding the Father, yet Philippians 2 is used to appeal to the uh, incarnation, the ascension and rule of Christ. Acts 10, as judge, the procession of the Spirit from the Son is based on Titus 3. Finally, the Spirit's filial result of believers appeals to both the gift and the pledge found both in Acts 2 and Ephesians 1. So even this Trinitarian confession, he is stringing along texts, scripture texts. Any questions? Take a five-minute break. Um, Patrick's piety, uh, both in terms of prayer and mission. When it comes to his prayer life, he talked about the concept of matching together the notions of prayer, devotion, and space, saying this, When I came to Ireland as a slave, I tended sheep daily and prayer frequently. You notice there's a sense of vocation and a spiritual practice. His work and his piety are not separated there. I tended to sheep and I prayed. My love of God grew more and more. My fear of him as well, while my faith and spirit increased. Notice this, in a single day, in a single day, I would pray a hundred times and the same at night. Even when I was in the woods on the mountain, I rose before dawn to pray through snow or cold or rain. I suffered no harm from it, and there was no laziness in me. I can now see that the spirit was burning inside of me. It's one thing I appreciate about uh, Patrick's piety here. He works and labors, even in in a pretty rough condition. To be a slave in Ireland is not pleasant. And here we have his prayer life only increasing only increasing. I suffer no harm. No laziness was in me. Rather, he perceives it that the spirit of God dwelling in him 
dwelling in him. It's burning inside of him. So the kindling of the spirit provides energies for him to then pursue God. Patrick, at another point, essentially sees someone praying inside of him. I wonder if this is just uninformed language about Romans 8. The Spirit gives us words that even in our prayer life are too deep for words to actually be expressed. At another time, I saw someone praying inside of me as if he, as if I were within my own body. I heard him praying above me. That is above the inner man, and he was praying powerfully with sighs. But at the end of the prayer, he said that he was the Spirit. I woke up then and remember what the apostle said. The Spirit helps the weakness in our prayers. For we do not know what we should pray for, but the Spirit himself prays for us with unspeakable sighs that cannot be expressed in words. And again, the Lord, our advocate, speaks for us. There's a sense of preservation uh, in his prayer life as well. So may God never separate me from the people he has brought for himself at the ends of the earth. I pray to God that he give me perseverance and allow me to remain a faithful witness to him until the end of my life for his sake. There is a relationship. There is a relationship. Your prayer life and preservation are connected. That's one end. The other end is God himself preserving you. If our preservation was solely dependent upon our prayers, Lord, help us. All right, Lord, help us. Notice how, we, how he even responds to these difficulties. He notes that Irish captivity led to his salvation. He notes that the Irish captivity was the means by which God opens his understanding. And in Ireland, the Lord opened my understanding about my unbelief so that although it was late, I might become aware of my sinful ways and turn with my whole heart to the Lord my God. He looked upon my misery and had mercy on my youth and ignorance. God watched over me before I knew him, before I had any wisdom, before I could distinguish between good and evil. He protected and comforted me as a father would his son. Even in the notion of an unconverted state, Patrick still perceives of God's preservation over his life. I wonder if we don't think about that enough, even as Christians. I think we quickly say God preserves Christian lives, but do we say God preserves the life of those not redeemed? even his response to his accusers. 
when I was accused by some of my supervisors who came forward and accused me of sins contrary to my work as a bishop. On that day, I was struck down mightily. I might have fallen in this life and for eternity. But the Lord kindly showed mercy to a stranger and pilgrim on account of his own name and helped me greatly in my affliction so that I did not slip into shame and infamy. I pray that God does not hold this sin against them. Ministry is for those who are thick-skinned. <clears throat> those going into ministry of any sort, you need thick skin. People will come up to you complaining. Some will throw accusations at you. Some not true. And you have to learn how to deal with that. You can't control information about you. One of the things that our, uh, one of our elders constantly says uh, in, <clears throat> just even among us as other elders, and then he, he'll say it a few times in sermons, are others safe on your lips? Are others safe on your lips? I want to look a little bit even at his time in mission. He gives uh, preservation. He or he at least uh, identifies a kind of preservation from God in this mission. And so I offer tireless thanks to my God who preserved his faithful one in the day of my temptation so that now I can confidently offer a sacrifice to him by which I mean the living sacrifice of my soul to Christ my Lord. He saved me in all my trouble so that I can ask, Lord, who am I and what is my calling? Can I just throw this at you real quick? Those are really two questions even for you to answer amongst yourself. Identity feeds activity, not vice versa. Who am I? Then compels, what am I called to? I already mentioned this. I'll try not to uh, <clears throat> lose it once more. Part of this is it's just really helpful to find just these ideas in the Christian tradition. These are conversations we just recently had with our global uh, workers in training. Since I believe in the Trinity, I must make known. Oh, it's a typo. Oh, I can't stand it when I do that. I must make known, not the fit of God. What is the quote? It's going to make me so upset.
I must make known. I must make known the, oh my goodness. Give me a second. Yep, I must make known the gift of God. And I have my pen. That's a massive typo. I'll fix it later. The gift of God and his eternal peace without fear of danger. I must faithfully spread the name of God everywhere so that after I die, I will leave an inheritance for my brothers and children, thousands of people, the ones I have baptized. Belief compels activity. This is why it's really important, just even as a minister, ideas, all ideas have consequences. Do not be taken that ideas are neutral. They are not. Ideas might not, the, the outcome of such ideas might not be known right away. They might be harder to ascertain. <clears throat> but even, even here, uh, his, his missiology is informed by his Trinitarianism. It's informed by a sense of calling it's compelled by desiring to leave behind a heritage. And I think it's a heritage that he's not trying to seek fame. I don't see him seeking fame here. I must faithfully spread the name of God everywhere. It's faithfulness. It's faithfulness. We sort of already read a few lines about the spirit of God maintaining, right? I'm bound by the spirit. I'm bound by the spirit. <clears throat> so even if I wished to leave these women and go to Britain, and I was quite ready to visit my country and family and to travel onto Gaul and to visit the brothers and see the face of the Lord's saints, I wanted that very much, and God knows it. Don't be misinformed about those in whom you have sent. They want to see loved ones. But nevertheless, I am bound by the Spirit who declares that I have left, that if I left, I'd be guilty of sin. I'm afraid of abandoning the work I've begun here. No, not my work, but that of Christ the Lord who has ordered me to stay with these people for the rest of my life. If the Lord is willing and will save me from every evil path so that I may not sin before him. What compels him to stay? God himself compels him to stay. God himself compels him to stay. Belief in God compels him to go. God himself compels him to stay. 
And since I knew a question about Patrick's use of scripture was going to be asked of me today, I purposely skipped it. That was a joke. Just a few items of reflection. A few items of reflection. Trinitarian confessionalism is the theological foundation of the simplest Christian. Ego Patricius, I am Patrick, a sinner, most rustic. And yet right after that, he confesses Nicene Trinitarian theology. Nicene Trinitarian theology. We did this a little bit when we covered uh, pro-Nicene uh, theology. Take the Nicene confession, put it in one column. In column two, figure out how many scriptures you can find to uphold those ideas. The Christian church unapologetically should be able to confess Nicaea. Work hard to develop a biblical view of Trinitarianism. Ask people you trust, friends, pastors, theologians, to help wrestle with you. For example, in, uh, I've talked a little bit about some of the training we do at our own church, the, the, the church that I pastor. Session one of missiological training. It's two full sessions of Trinitarian theology. Don't fall into the trap that theology is not practical. Don't also fall in the trap that all things have to be practical. Second, Develop a rich prayer life through the mundane events of each day. Right? Especially as a, as a missionary, <clears throat> life is monotonous. It's not always exciting. Good grief. Our life here is not always exciting. Let's just be honest. <laughs> learn. Learn how to pray in your mundane life. Learn how to pray in mundane practices in your day. The three of us tomorrow will do what? Our chore list tells us we're going to clean the kitchen. Everyone has to clean their kitchen. As a very mundane activity, feeling like there's no spiritual value in it. Learn to pray in those times. Learn to develop a rich prayer life, even in the most mundane events of each day. Third, one of the, one of the things I didn't trace uh, that's sort of connected to this is <clears throat> Greco-Roman education. 
we're used to an educational model that says when you're 18, you then go off to college. If college is part of your life, if not, sometimes you'll go straight into the workforce. But I'm talking about what are our vision of education. After 18, you graduate in two years, 22. Maybe you pursue master's work. Maybe you wait just a little bit. But you might finish education by the time you're 30, give or take. That is not Greco-Roman educational practices. That is not. For Patrick to kind of go back to training at age 25, goodness, goodness, no. Put that in, put that in perspective. <clears throat> A 12-year-old would finish education and only the elite would go on to the next one. 12. He is 25 to 30 years old. If your seminary classroom is filled with 30-year-olds, double it. If it's filled with 25, double it. It's Patrick. Do not let age nor abilities deter pursuits of theological training and of vocational ministry. Those in the university would look at Patrick and call him the washout. It's a waste of time. He's beyond his prime, can't speak well, struggles to even speak his own native language well, yet what does he do? I, he doesn't really reflect on it. This is more kind of a sanctified imagination. I wanna suggest his pastor brings him in. provides theological education for him. Learn, fourth, learn to reflect upon suffering with gratitude and through the lens of sovereignty. Right? This is now the second time that we're seeing this in the fathers. They go back and see all things upheld by God and through God's hand. No events happen outside of God's hand. And every father that we've kind of looked at in the past couple of weeks look through, looks through the halls and throws verses to these past events. Learn to reflect upon suffering with gratitude. I think this goes without saying. Fifth, consider missions as a vocation. Consider missions as a vocation. <clears throat> Patrick felt called and compelled to go. Patrick felt called and compelled to go back, to go back to a land that you would not expect him to go back. It's a really good question. It's a really good question. 
Uh, how, how specific do I feel or do I perceive uh, a specific call to a place and location? So I, I don't want to, I want to try to be as general as the scriptures are. Go therefore and baptize, teach, baptize in the name of the Trinity, all ethne, all nations, all panta ethne is not continents. We have to break the vision that all nations is continental. All ethne are ethnic linguistic people groups. So what is the church's mission to reach every ethne? So I think it's a pretty broad target. Do I feel called and compelled to go? Yes. Where do I feel called and compelled to go? You probably have some freedom. Probably have some freedom. Join a team where work is already being done. Uh, our church has a specific vision of what that looks like. We want to engage un or we want to pursue unengaged and unreached people groups. Our attention is not towards South America where Roman Catholicism has a stronghold. It's not our, it doesn't mean people won't feel called to go there and people could and shouldn't feel called to go there, but we're just trying to have a target. Um, so I'd say have some freedom on where people could go. He feels called to go to Ireland. Should I feel called to go to Central Asia? Yeah, hundred percent, hundred percent. Yeah, and the and I think the calling is more or less gospel commitments, right? Has the Lord deeply rooted and anchored my commitments to God and the gospel, so that I stay in these hard moments? I don't know if everyone. So, like using, right? This is this is really normal language. How many of you? How many of you would uh, categorize your conversion like Paul? Just like this bright light, you know when, where, how, and when it happened. How many of yours had Peter? It's just very slow. Denied him three times, right? Is he on board? Is he not on board? He's really over anxious, but yet fully, like, where's that conversion actually happen? Right? It's, it's a little bit muddled. I'd probably suggest missions as likewise. Some people probably wake up and be like, there is nothing else I'm going to do. This, 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 and there. Where others, I think it's probably they're rolling into it. Did that did that answer what you're shooting for? Yeah. 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 Consider missions as vocation. 
missions, uh, training for missions is, um, it's very selfless because here's what you're doing. You're training people not to stay with you, right? If you're mobilizing, you're training people not to stay with you and to be sent out from you. You have to have a selfless disposition when you're training for missiology. Okay, that's all that I have. Any broad reflections on Patrick that you might have? Any sort of broad uh, reflections or even lessons that you drew out from Patrick's life? Yeah. No, you're good. Keep rolling. <laughs> I know. How did it turn into that? I don't know when the, 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 like the party atmosphere latched onto it. I don't know when. Uh, but hopefully this is a sense of recovery, right? What we're, what we're doing, trying to recover the original vision of Patrick. People are, uh, enjoy the green beer intoxication over a missionary, right? That is just baffling to me. I don't think Patrick is known as a theologian. He is not a theologian. He's a simpleton. And that's okay. I, and he is beyond faithful in reaching Ireland. I don't know where it came from. But the legend started developing uh, 7th century. Probably about two to 300 years after his death. Yeah, other big takeaways. <clears throat> That's right. <laughs> Very much so. That's great. That's really encouraging. That's really encouraging. Anybody from the screen? Any takeaways? <clears throat> Any takeaways? Okay. Let's call it a night. Call it a night 30 minutes early. Are we okay with that? <laughs> Have a wonderful, wonderful Thanksgiving holiday and break. Be safe. We'll see you in two weeks. Okay. Bye, everybody. <laughs>